The vocal break is the place in your voice where it shifts from one kind of resonance to another. It's also known as the passaggio, and people have more than one, though there's usually one that causes a particular amount of trouble. I think passaggio is a very pretty name for a part of the voice that can sound awfully ugly, but that's just my take. Let's ask the horns what they think. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music sung in the Prima Passaggio, music sung in the Segundo Passaggio, and music that transcends the notion of Passaggio altogether. It's time for the first listener Q&A of 2020, and I'm excited to get into it, so find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. I've been singing for a long time, but I've only been taking serious voice lessons for a little over a year now, and man, I have learned so much. It has been a fascinating journey, and kind of an inward journey, at least more so than the other instruments I've learned in my life. I play a lot of different instruments, but singing is the only one that exists entirely inside of me. It makes for an interesting challenge when it comes to learning or teaching. Um, I, I don't remember who said this, but I've heard it described as basically learning how to sing is kind of like if you walked into your first violin lesson. And and your violin teacher just gave you some wood and some string and said, okay, so first thing you're going to have to do is build a violin. There's so much metaphor in teaching singing because you're talking about things that you can't look at. You can't really look down your throat. You know, sometimes you do sing in front of a mirror so you can kind of see what's happening in the back of your throat. But a lot of times it's just like you need to sing up and through and put it through the mask and keep your voice channeled and toward the front and toward the back. And it's all of these kind of metaphorical abstract concepts that are required to make the very fine adjustments that you need to make as you're figuring out how to sing. It's just a very different process than learning drums or guitar or something where, you know, a teacher can just look at your fingers and say, no, no, like, move your finger here, you know, put your finger here, adjust your wrist like so. With singing, they can't just reach inside your throat and kind of be like, no, 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 move your tongue and put it like this. This will make the notes sound good. Sometimes I wish it were that simple, even while I understand that singing is by its nature a very special thing. And as a result, it requires a kind of a different and special kind of instruction. So I am excited to get into our Q&A episode. The usual things up front, if you would like to send me a question for a future Q&A episode, you of course can do so. Email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton, or on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Strong Songs is a totally listener-supported endeavor. Thank you so much to everybody who backs this show on Patreon, especially to anyone who has recently signed up. Welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. You're making it possible for me to make this show, and if you want to know more about how you can help me make Strong songs, head over to patreon.com slash strong songs. Okay, let's get into your questions. The very first question that I was going to answer was about the song Toss a Coin to Your Witcher, and that, of course, became its own little mini episode, so I hope that everybody liked that. That was fun to make, and now I will have more time to answer other questions on the show. So, next question comes from Fabian. This is very exciting because we haven't done anything quite like this on Strong Songs before. I'll let Fabian take it over. Fabian writes, 
When taking long road trips with my family when I was a kid, we would get bored of listening to terrible German radio stations. So my dad would put in a mixtape, yes, an actual tape, this was not that long ago, and that he had compiled from U.S. radio stations when he was living there. They were mostly filled with classic rock favorites such as Queen, The Eagles, or Bob Seger. The tape is now long gone, but I've been able to remember and identify all of the songs on the tape except for one, and it's been driving me crazy. I have now used my limited musical abilities to recreate this song, and I was wondering if one of your listeners would be able to identify it. The vocals are replaced by synth. All other instruments should be more or less original. So, Strong Songs listeners, let's listen to the clip that Fabian recorded of the song that he can't quite put his finger on. Right, so that is Fabian's example of the song that he has stuck in his head and he isn't sure what it is. I haven't put too much thought into trying to figure out what this is or really employed any of the things I might do to try to work it out because I really want to know if listeners can find out what it is. So if you think you know what this is, uh, send an email to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com and uh, you can also just hit me up on social media, I guess, and let me know what you think it is. I will run it by Fabian and we'll probably, hopefully, have an update on a future episode. Tyler writes in, I have a question about Led Zeppelin. What's going on with the time signature at the beginning of the ocean? It sounds like the guitar and the drums are playing in different time signatures. Well, Tyler, let's listen and see. This is a classic Zeppelin riff. in an odd meter, but they're definitely playing together. So yeah, this is a well-known one. This is the final track on Led Zeppelin's 1973 album, Houses of the Holy. The band is definitely playing together. There's just a little bit of 7-8 going on. So the way that I would count this is basically 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So one bar of normal four, four time, four quarter notes. Then I'd switch over to start counting eighth notes. I would count four eighth notes and then three eighth notes to get that bar of seven, eight. Let me demonstrate. Here we go. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, one. And that's pretty much it. They go into 4-4 from there. They don't play that bar of 7-8 everywhere in the song. But when that riff happens and it feels like there's kind of that little hiccup, that's what's going on. This is actually something I talked about specifically, uh, the time signature 7-8, in the episode about Rush's Tom Sawyer, fairly recent episode. And that is what's cool about 7-8 is it gives you just that feeling of one missing eighth note. It's so close to just being the groove, you know, that they've been doing up to that point. But there's this one missing beat, which gives it this kind of stumbling you know, uh, unexpected hiccup feeling that's pretty cool and keeps you off balance. 
Listener Arneem writes in and asks, What I make of the old joke, a rock musician plays three chords for 1,000 people, while a jazz musician plays 1,000 chords for three people. Um, I think this is a funny joke for pretty obvious reasons, like rock music is typically less harmonically complex than jazz music. But at least at the time that people would make this joke, rock music was much more commercially successful, and it was more likely that if you played a rock gig, you would play for a whole bunch of people, as opposed to a jazz gig where you're probably playing at brunch at some restaurant where people aren't even really listening to you. However, I think that this joke is losing its relevance because a lot of modern music, especially modern R&B music, what a whole lot of neo-soul artists are doing, and even, you know, just some modern sort of soul jazz groups are doing, I mean, those groups will play to humongous sold-out crowds, and they're playing some very advanced, uh, very harmonically interesting music that much goes far beyond the, like, three-chord rock. And actually, rock bands are kind of on the downturn. Like, there aren't that many, you know, especially new arena rock bands playing, you know, hard three-chord rock for huge sold-out crowds. So while this is a funny joke in that it is cleverly constructed, it's actually less true now than it used to be. Sarah writes in, The other night I was at a large karaoke party. For the whole party, people in the audience were having their own conversations and chatting while people sang various songs. But when a couple started singing the Chainsmokers song called Closer, the whole crowd stopped chatting and watched, mesmerized. I can safely say that this wasn't because of the singer's skill. There was some sort of magic in the song. We all noticed it and discussed why this song caused everyone to go quiet and watch the very amateur performance. So Sarah's question is, what is it that's special about this song that would give a karaoke performance that kind of power. Well, let's listen to a clip. Hey, I was doing just fine before I met you. I drink too much and that's an issue, but I'm okay. So the song starts out very arrestingly, and I think that that's part of it. It's very clear that there's a story that's going to be told, and I think that the narrative is what makes this song really catchy. Chainsmokers are a duet, it's a duo of two guys, but this song is featuring Halsey, the singer. And she comes in on the second verse, and I think that's kind of the other crucial part of the storytelling of this song. So I think that storytelling between the two people is the reason that this song might grab the attention of an otherwise restless karaoke room. There's a couple of qualities this song has, you know, I I think the kind of plain spoken lyrics talking about the Blink-182 song that we listened to or the mattress that you stole, it kind of has that very plain spoken relatable storytelling that, you know, a lot of people can kind of feel and that I think also draws people in a little bit. A lot of pop songs that people sing in karaoke are big songs that everybody knows and they've been around forever, you know, I will survive or something like that, these very broad statements. So singing something that's much more modern and much more kind of contemporary in its references, I think will draw people in. I think there's maybe a chance that people didn't know this song as well, or it's just kind of new, so it's fresh. But really, I think it just comes down to the fact that this song feels like a conversation. It's not just a duet, you know? It isn't like two people singing in harmony with one another. It has a conversational quality. The male character in the in the recording, the man makes this opening statement. He even starts by saying, hey, like he's grabbing your attention, and then the woman responds in the next verse. And I think that because it feels like a conversation, it adds an element of drama that you don't normally get in your average karaoke song. And as a result, people will kind of quiet down and listen up because there's a story going on here. And the story brings them in, and the story says, you know, what's going to happen next? What's going to resolve between these two characters? And that's just a very different energy than your average uh, karaoke song or even your average karaoke duet. So that's my theory anyways. Cool song. So baby, pull me 
Nicole writes in, How does What's Up Danger by Blackway and Black Caviar from the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse soundtrack manage to feel so epic? Specifically, the moment starting at 2 minutes and 37 seconds. It seems like a simple beat, but it takes my breath away every time. Well, I love this song, I love this movie, and I love this moment in this movie, and I think the song is a huge part of that. I do think that there's a reason to answer Nicole's question. So first, let's just listen to an earlier part from this song. This is when they first kind of say, What's Up Danger? It's before the climactic moment moment that Nicole is asking about, which in the context of the movie is this grand leap of faith that the main character Miles Morales takes. He takes the leap later in the song, so this is a little bit earlier. If I'm crazy, I'm on my own. If I'm waiting, it's on my phone. If I sound lazy, just ignore my tone, because I'm always going to answer when you call my phone. Like, what's up, danger? So it's all about the build. The real answer to Nicole's question is the key to that moment toward the end of the song is how they've built up to it. That first time they say, what's up, danger? We're in this kind of a low burn and it lands in this static place. It just lands on the one and there's this kind of churn underneath uh, the line, what's up, danger? What's up, danger? There's a pulse, you know, it's kind of moving forward, but it's still in this kind of a dark place. The second time it happens, it sounds like this. If I'm crazy, I'm on my own. If I'm waiting, it's on my throne. If I sound lazy, just ignore my tone. Cause I'm always gonna answer when you call my phone. Like, what's up, danger? That's space. Like, what's up, danger? And that build to this. So it's all about the contrast between those various sections and the way that they build a narrative that matches up perfectly with the action on screen. This is about Miles Morales finally believing in himself and, you know, losing his fear of danger and leaping off a friggin' skyscraper. And he does so, you know, in time with the music. So the first time it says, what's up, danger? It's this low dirge and it's pulsing. It's kind of building. He's climbing the building. He's getting ready to do it. The second time it does it, the space of that moment, you know, the sound all goes away. And this is when he leaps into the air and it's this incredible moment of just like the silence of falling I love this sequence in this movie I should say this might be like my favorite superhero moment in any superhero movie and I've seen pretty much all of them and one of the things that they do that's pretty cool is compared to the version on the soundtrack they change the recording they extend that silence quite a bit when he jumps off the building so it draws out a lot longer and you're waiting for that downbeat that you know is coming and it's it's really masterfully done the sort of tension and then release they also incorporate the score from the movie in a cool way it's kind of mixed in there so that once the beat comes in you'll start to hear you know these like French horn swells and then the orchestra starts to kind of build up as Miles is leaping through traffic and you know realizing the full extent of his powers and that kind of ties it back into the world of the movie and feels you know very cinematic to use a hackneyed term it's so good this is what it sounds like in the movie that's all it is Miles a leap of faith what's up danger Like, what's up, danger? And he's just falling. Like, what's up, danger? Still falling. 
Here we go. They fit perfectly. Draw it out a little more. You can hear the score in there, right? And the score starts to become more prominent. Okay, well, I guess I have to go watch the entirety of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse again. I will be right back. Okay, I'm back. Good movie. That's a good sounding movie, actually. If you haven't watched that movie and listened with headphones, I recommend it. That's one example. That moment is, you know, kind of maybe the er example from this movie. But there's a lot of really cool synthesis between the sound design and the music. It's a very musical movie in a lot of ways. Man, it's such a good movie. All right, next question. Matthew writes, on the overture track from the Halo Reach soundtrack, there is a tinkling instrument that comes in about 30 seconds in. Is that some kind of obscure chime instrument? It sounds like someone playing glass bottles with various volumes of water. Very cool either way. Well, let's listen to this first of all. You can hear it down in the left channel there. It's kind of this chimey, high-pitched mallet instrument. So, really cool music. When I first heard this, my ear was telling me that Matthew is on the right track, that this is some kind of a glass mallet instrument. I wasn't totally sure what it was. I looked around a little bit trying to figure out what it might sound like and couldn't quite find it. Then I remembered, hey, wait a minute, I can just ask the composer. So in a previous lifetime, I wrote about video games, and a number of times I spoke with or interviewed Marty O'Donnell, the composer from those early Halo games, including Halo Reach. He actually composed that soundtrack along with Michael Salvatore, who is also an incredible composer. And I had his email address. I figured I'm just going to email Marty, and I'm going to ask him if he remembers what this sound is. So I wrote Marty, and I heard back. The answer is a little bit of an anticlimax, maybe, but he says he doesn't totally remember what it was, but it was definitely a sample. So this wasn't like in the you know orchestra chamber, some percussionist was playing an instrument that they flew in from somewhere or anything. Um, this was a sample. And he says it was probably some sort of world instrument, world percussion sample that had a sound that he liked. Could have been something glass, something based on a glass mallet instruments. He's not sure. And mostly he just thought it sounded cool. Definitely the kind of thing that you will encounter in this modern age of music composition is that people do use these sample libraries and you can get all kinds of cool sounds and sometimes not even really know what they are. You're kind of just more going for the sound. And it sounds like in this case, that is what happened. Halo Reach though, man, good music. Pretty good game too. The next question comes from Russ who writes, why does singing in the shower only sound good to the person singing in the shower? I love this question. This is something I've thought about a lot of times, and I think a lot of people have probably thought about. The answer, I think, comes down to two things. It's partly the way that reverb works, and it's partly the way that the voice works. 
So the shower is a great place to sing for a number of reasons. One of them is that because it's all warm and there's a lot of moisture in the air, your voice can kind of get relaxed. You have nice and moisturized uh, vocal folds. It's easier to sing. Um, also, because of the reverb in the room, it typically sounds pretty good. So bathrooms tend to have a lot of tile, a big mirror, a lot of hard surfaces, and those hard surfaces are very bouncy. It's the reason that bathrooms have that kind of bouncy, echoey sound. And when you sing in a space like that, your voice bounces around and you get that big, nice, natural reverb sound that makes your voice just sound a little bit bigger and a little bit warmer than it might otherwise sound. When you hear someone outside of the shower, you're removed from that reverberant space and you hear their voice a little bit differently. Some of the reverb is still there, but it sounds much drier. And as a result, you'll be singing in the shower to yourself and you hear a nice, big, full, ringing sound. And if you hear someone outside, it just sort of sounds like a person singing in the shower, which we've all heard that. It sounds kind of faintly ridiculous. Like it just doesn't sound as nice as it sounds to the person in the room because you're not in the room with all the reverbs, so you just hear it differently. So that's a big part of it. Maybe the biggest part of it is the way that the reverb differential works depending on where the listener is standing. Another part of it, I think, is just how you hear your own singing voice. When you are singing and you hear it in your head, it sounds one way. When you hear a recording of yourself singing, it sounds quite another. And if you were able to hear yourself outside of the room, you know, it would also sound different to you. So I think that when you're in the shower, when you're in the space, and when your head is where the singing is coming out of, you just hear everything very differently than if you weren't in the space, if you weren't standing in all the reverb in the bathroom, and you weren't inside the head of the person who's singing. Tova writes, what is it with the music of that opening montage from the movie Up that makes me go all teary-eyed? I get that they slow the melody down toward the end when the narrative takes a more sorrowful turn, but what else is happening there that makes the same melody go from a cheerful, happy place to an emotional, heartbreaking one? Well, Tova, I went back and I watched this montage. This is the Married Life montage from the beginning of Up. Just for you, I subjected myself to that emotional bludgeoning. And uh, I, you know, I think it's a pretty straightforward answer really to this question. So like a lot of Pixar movies, and actually just like a lot of movies, the score to Up was composed by Michael Giacchino, who is a really hardworking, really prolific film composer. He's done a million different movies. He was the composer for Lost, composer for a bunch of Marvel movies, and a bunch of Pixar movies, among many others. I really like his score for Up. I actually am kind of mixed on Up as a movie, but I really like the music. I think Giacchino did a great job, and most of it is that main motif. Giacchino isn't always a really big melody guy, but when he does a melody, sometimes he comes up with really good ones. I like this one in particular. It's kind of just this melody sounds like this. And this intro uh, segment uses that motif. It's just that over and over and over again with a bunch of different instrumentations and a bunch of different energies. So the first time you hear it, it's during this kind of glowing, youthful part of the of the guy's life. And as a result, it's really jaunty. It's really up-tempo. It's played by very clear melodic instruments. And it's moving along at a nice clip. begin to stretch it out, but in an optimistic way, and then tragedy, and this long, drawn-out decrescendo. I feel 
like a lot of listeners right now are like maybe crying <laughs> because they've seen this movie and they associate such strong feelings with this opening sequence. I think that the sequence is really, really effective, even if I don't love it because it's so brutally manipulative. But that's just my stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm sure some people love this sequence and it is very, very effective. And I mean, it's beautiful. It's moving. I, I cried when I watched this just when I was watching it again to make this episode. And I do think that the reason it works so well is the synthesis of the visuals and the visual storytelling along with Giacchino's score and his musical storytelling. It's an old trick, but they're doing it very effectively. He has introduced this motif, this very jaunty, um, almost circusy motif that fits with all the balloons and the general visual, you know, happiness of this early section and by drawing it out and slowing it down it creates this like perfect musical representation of what's happening on screen because on screen um, his wife and he have suffered this great loss and the music sort of stretches out and goes to these long tones and then it just goes down to that one solo lone piano as he looks out on her sitting alone out on the lawn. Now, that kind of muted, dramatic piano is everywhere. I mean, that is like a sound that is now just associated with nostalgia and feelings. I mean, there's there have been all kinds of essays about this. The nostalgia piano, you know, that plays over movie trailers for your, you know, the new entry in your favorite series where they'll play the old theme, but they'll play it on a piano all by itself. I mean, this is like a very um, emotional shorthand in music. So I do think that hearing it absent the visuals and absent the storytelling would still be affecting. I mean, it would sound sad. But it really comes down to the way that it's matching up with what's happening and the way that that solo piano kind of fits with her, right? It like embodies her sitting out there alone on the lawn as he looks through the window at her. And it really just it it encapsulates the scene so perfectly that I think it's very moving because it's a moving and sad story that, you know, ends with a bunch of dogs flying planes. What is up about? What What is up anyways? Okay, let's move on. Sean writes, I have no real musical talent to speak of other than getting pretty good at the drums in rock band. Sean, I'm going to interrupt you here to say it takes musical talent to be good at the drums in rock band. So uh, don't sell yourself short. That's how I learned drums. I first started playing drums in rock band and I was like, I think I can learn drums. And then I started playing real drums. So you're one step away from annoying your neighbors. Okay, back to Sean's email. Sean writes, However, after getting really into the episode of Strong Songs about Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, I borrowed a keyboard from my father-in-law and I'm trying to learn the piano. Better late than never, right? I know you talk about jazz piano a lot, and while it may take me a while to get to a really high level, do you have any favorite beginning songs that you had to learn as part of your curriculum? There are a ton of these. I would definitely recommend getting the Jamie Abersold play-along. I think it's volume 54. It's called Maiden Voyage. I know that off the top of my head because I've bought it for or recommended it to so many students over the years. That has a bunch of really good beginning tunes on it. They write out the piano parts, I think, or you can find voicings for those chords. And um, it's a good place to start. Any of those songs are good. Here are three I would recommend learning. The first is Horace Silver's Song for My Father. part on that pretty straightforward chord progression. The second one is So What by Miles Davis from Kind of Blue. (laughs) 
that one's nice to learn because it's really only two chords, but you can move around a lot within those two chords, and they stay put on those chords for a very long time. And the last one should be a blues. There are a whole ton of 12-bar blueses that you could learn. There's a blues on so many 1950s jazz recordings. Um, since you've got Kind of Blue, you could learn Freddie Freeloader off of Kind of Blue, also by Miles Davis. Um, it's a 12-bar blues. That's a good form to learn. There's not a ton of chords in that 12-bar blues. Sometimes they get complicated, especially in bebop, but often it's you know not too many chords. And if you're going to be learning jazz, you want to learn how to play blues voicings and the blues chord progression just because it's very, very common. And it's kind of a way into playing a whole lot of different things, as I actually talked about on that episode about um, Monin by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. There's a lot of blues in that track, even though obviously the song form is not a blues song form. So, I would say start with those three and really just go from there. Get a few beginner piano books, use a metronome, don't go too fast, and uh, good luck. Our next question comes from Jonathan who writes, So, my confession is that until I was an adult, I kind of hated the saxophone. Well, Jonathan, it's very brave of you to write into this podcast. Jonathan continues, I didn't really listen to jazz, so my main association with it was Kenny G and Muzak and some 80s songs that as a grunge kid in the 90s, I thought were really uncool. Jonathan has three questions about the saxophone, and I'm going to try to answer all of them. His first question, was anti-saxophone sentiment common for people my age? I was born in 1980, or am I just weird? So to answer that question, first, no, Jonathan, you are not weird. I do think that there is a kind of a complicated relationship with the saxophone for anyone who grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, because as you mentioned uh, correctly, the saxophone just wasn't really as present in music as it was in previous decades. Now, the saxophone in the 30s, 40s, and 50s was kind of one of the ultimate instruments. It was like the melody instrument is one of the jazz instruments. It was really cool, and it was just a great voice that was present all over the place. It was on the radio, there was always a sax solo in dance songs, lots and lots of saxophone. Even in the early rock and roll recordings in the 50s and 60s, you'll hear the sax break. You know, the sax player comes in and sort of blows his stack for eight bars, 16 bars, and then the melody comes back in. That was a thing right up until it wasn't. have a lot of theories for why that was. My main thing as a saxophonist that I've encountered is the saxophone is a very strong sound. It's a very big sound and it's kind of unambiguous. One way that I put it is it's not really possible to play saxophone ironically in the same way that you can if you're kind of in a grunge band or a punk band and you're playing guitar. It just, you're kind of putting your heart out there when you play a saxophone solo because the sound is so rich and it's so close to a human voice that I think it just, it brings on this kind of intense fundamental sound that feels very energetic and very honest. It's a very honest instrument. So with the rise of smooth jazz and players like Kenny G, saxophone began to be associated more with, you know, music your parents might listen to or music that might be on in an elevator or at the supermarket and less with, you know, the kind of cutting edge, intense, exciting music that young people will be listening to, which was much more electric guitars and electronic instruments and that kind of a sound. 
one of the challenges of playing saxophone is that the saxophone can't doesn't really blend into the background. You can be in a horn section and that's really fun. Bands with horn sections are great. All bands should have horn sections. I love playing in horn sections and writing for horn sections, but when the saxophone is going to be featured, it's really going to be featured. I've played a lot of sax solos with a lot of different bands in a lot of different settings and when it's time to play that solo all eyes are on you, all ears are on you. There's no way to do it casually. And I think that that sort of limits the way the saxophone can be used, even though the reason for that is because the saxophone is so mighty and powerful and, in my opinion, really great. So the musical sensibilities of the 80s and especially the 90s just didn't really mesh with this super big, hard-on-your-sleeve, honest woodwind instrument that was going to dominate a solo in that way. It just didn't quite fit, and so the saxophone kind of fell out of favor because, as you say, it wasn't cool in that certain way. Even while I think coolness is something that some people do get very concerned with with music, but in the end, it's not nearly as important as just the sounds and the quality of the music itself. Now, I'm going to make a comparison that isn't perfect, but that I do think is interesting, and that's that I kind of think that the electric guitar is sort of going through right now what the saxophone went through a couple of decades ago. In the 40s and 50s, the saxophone was kind of the electric guitar of most bands. It was like in every band, and you heard saxophone solos all over the place. Then in the 70s and 80s, electric guitars were just everywhere, and it was all about the electric guitar. Everyone wanted to be a guitar player and get a guitar. They were guitar gods. It was this whole culture. And then that gradually kind of went away. And today, you don't actually see that many bands out there with electric guitars being featured prominently, at least not among popular newer groups. Of course, a lot of people still play guitar, but you don't see guitar solos like you used to see in the 70s and the 80s, and it's just sort of changed. Now you see people standing up on stage with a drum machine and a cool keyboard. They're kind of making the music very differently, and it's if someone pulls out a guitar, there's kind of a kitsch factor to it, which is also true of a saxophone solo. Like I said, it's not a perfect comparison. Of course, there are a ton of differences between guitars and saxophones. I just think that both are kind of emblematic of the ways that uh, musical like tastes shift and the kinds of instruments that are featured shift as the music itself changes. I have noticed an evolution in the general attitude toward the saxophone. Obviously, this is like a big picture thing that's hard to say definitively, but I do hear more saxophone in things, and I think people embrace it more. And I think that it's tied to that irony thing. Uh, pop music is less ironic now than it was maybe 10, 20 years ago. And as a result, the saxophone fits better with that music. I actually have a theory that the tipping point was when Sergei Stepanov stepped on stage during the 2010 Eurovision contest. He began to play an alto sax solo while pumping his hips, and the entire world realized, hey, wait a minute, this is epic. The saxophone is great. So, you know, thanks, Epic Sax Guy. Jonathan's second question is, how did you get into saxophone? The short answer to that is, I was in band class in seventh grade. I needed to pick an instrument. I thought the saxophone seemed cool. I picked the saxophone. I liked it and discovered I sort of had a talent for it pretty early on and got more and more into it the more saxophone players I discovered. I remember when I was in fifth grade, this was before middle school, before I had played sax, there was a kid, I think a grade above me, who already played saxophone, like he had his parents had gotten him lessons or something, and he came and played at some school assembly, and I saw him playing an alto sax, and I thought, 
that is the coolest instrument I've ever seen in my life. I want to play one of those. Why am I playing this recorder that they're making us play? Recorder is bad and saxophone is good. I have learned since that recorder is actually pretty cool too, but I think that that kind of, uh, that was the first thing that made me drawn to saxophone. And since then, yeah, I just, I was lucky. I had a really great public school music program that I got to go through and was in a university town with some great teachers. And so I got better at saxophone and that reinforced my love of the instrument. And then I went to school for it and kept playing it and still play it today. And it's still my favorite instrument of all the instruments that I play. Jonathan's final question, is Kenny G actually good? This is sort of a loaded question, so let's see. First of all, Kenny G is a fantastically successful recording artist. If all saxophone players could make a tenth of the amount of money that Kenny G has made simply by playing saxophone, I think that we all would, so mad props to him for being very successful. I will also say that Kenny G seems like a really good guy. I recently got like a licensed board game that he put out that's really funny. He seems very self-aware. There's this one college humor, I think it is, video about him teaching a guy to play saxophone that's just hilarious. Like, he just seems like a really funny guy that's kind of in on the joke that he's, you know, this guy with his big curly hair who plays smooth jazz. But you may notice it kind of sounds like I'm talking around something, and that is, you know, I don't really care for Kenny G's music. It's not my thing. I know a lot of people like it, but it feels engineered to be on in the background, and that's not really the kind of music that I'm into. And I also understand the resentment that saxophone players may feel toward him only because he is so um, ubiquitous and everyone knows who he is that it's really hard when that person becomes just a stand-in for saxophone. I mean, there were so many years where I was like a serious saxophone player. I was studying it in school. I was doing it professionally for a living. I'd tell people that's what I did, and they'd be like, oh, like Kenny G. And just, you start to kind of feel bummed out about that after a while. So I understand that feeling, and I felt that way too. I also wish that more people were more aware that the soprano sax, specifically, is a beautiful instrument that can play all kinds of music. And like, I love the soprano sax. There are some really great soprano sax players out there who do much, much more with the instrument than Kenny G does. By design, he's not really he's not really trying to. I just wish that as the kind of unofficial ambassador of the soprano sax, he was doing a little bit more to communicate to people what a wonderful instrument it is, because it is great, and it's great in ways that he doesn't really explore that often. saxophonist Joshua Redman on his 96 album Freedom in the Groove playing soprano sax and sounding very good. So there are a lot of great soprano sax players out there. Branford Marsalis, Tim Rees, Paul McCandless, Jeff Coffin. There's a lot of people who play soprano sax really well and I wish that more people associated them with the instrument. So musically, not my thing, but he seems like a great guy, and I totally respect his success. Jack writes, In Muse's Muscle Museum, there's a moment at around 3 minutes and 20 seconds in where Matt Bellamy's vocals seamlessly transition into what certainly sounds like a guitar solo. How did they pull this off so smoothly? Well, Jack, I think I can answer that. Let's listen to that tune. This is Muscle Museum by Muse. So believe it or not, this is actually Bellamy's voice. He's putting it through some sort of a processor that puts a lot of distortion on it, but that is a person singing. 
Of course, Bellamy's signature caterwauling shriek is a big part of Muse's sound, and he likes to put a lot of effects on his voice in various recordings. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. He might be using some sort of a like talk box type thing to actually put his voice through the guitar, or they might be doing that in post-processing, but I think it's just his voice and a distortion effect that he, you know, turns on and then just sings really high, which gives it it sounds, you know, a very it's a very vocal sounding guitar sound, but it does sound like a guitar because it's the whole guitar apparatus, but the thing producing the tone is his voice instead of a guitar string. Let me see if I can kind of replicate it. We're going to start. This is just, I'm going to sing some notes and then I will distort them. Here are the notes. Okay, that was my impression of Matt Bellamy's falsetto. So let's take that source signal and put it through some processing, a little bit of reverb, a little bit of uh, distortion, maybe a stomp box and an overdriven amp. This will be a modeled amp, not a real amp. But um, that's it'll kind of get the effect. Let's see how that sounds. Voila, there you have it. It's actually not really that hard to do, and it's a really cool sounding effect, right? It kind of makes me want to play with that kind of thing more. If I did harder rocking music, I would probably I would probably do that to my falsetto as well. Ryan writes, when I started tossing around the idea of starting to learn piano, I kept getting feedback that the piano is easy compared to other instruments. This strikes me as naive, but what do I know? Is there something to this? Uh, yes. So short answer is yes, there is. Um, my first big answer is no instrument is easy, or at least it's going to require work to master any instrument. And the amount of work that it takes to truly master an instrument is a life's pursuit. That's true of any instrument. That said, some instruments are definitely easier to start on than others. And the piano is a fantastic starting instrument. I mean, there's a reason that a lot of children begin on piano. Part of that is because the piano gives you a great overview of all of harmony. You know, it's, like, it's basically like a musical abacus. I've heard it described that way. You're looking at every single note and it's very visual. You know, you're just going left to right and it's kind of a, a left to right version of that Y axis, the harmony axis that I described on the previous Rhythm and Harmony episode. Um, so, you know, it's going left to right instead of up and down, which is a little bit different than how I usually think of harmony, but it's the same idea and it gives you the entire harmonic spectrum. It's also easy to learn because you don't have to worry about quite as many things with your tone production as you do with, say, a horn. You know, you press a key on the piano and it gives you that note. As long as the piano is in tune, you're going to be in tune. You don't have all the sort of physical, um, the physical concerns of, say, playing a saxophone or a trumpet or something like that, where you have to worry about your embouchure and your airflow. Or if you're singing, there's all of these, you know, complexities to learning how to sing. Or if you're playing guitar, there's a lot of strange technique. You kind of have to get your fingers tough enough to press the strings down. With a piano, a little kid can just walk up to a piano and start banging on the keys. I'm sure any of you with uh, children or nieces and nephews and a piano in the house have probably experienced that. So, Ryan, I'm getting the sense that people are telling you piano is easy in a bad way like they're saying oh that's easy but I hope that's not the case because piano is easy in a good way like it's not easy that's not really the word I would use but it's very approachable and it's a very good starter instrument if you're considering a first instrument to learn and you like the piano and you're kind of drawn to it I definitely suggest exploring that you know go play the piano it's a very good starter instrument and if you learn a lot of things on piano and then decide you want to learn other instruments that's also really cool it's a great sort of foundation for any musical journey the first stop should probably be the piano, or at least it's hard to go wrong if you start on piano. Peter writes in with a related question. He asks, 
You recommend that people should play music perhaps again or maybe start afresh. I played trumpet in high school and now 56 years later in my retirement, I want to try something new. Is there any reason to recommend a clarinet over a saxophone or vice versa? So clarinet or saxophone is the question. My advice is, for starters, which instrument moves you? Which do you think sounds beautiful? If one of them moves you more than the other one, go with that one. If we're just talking, which is the better starter instrument? I would say that for you, probably you want to start on saxophone. It is an easier instrument than the clarinet. Typically, the order actually used to go, you would learn clarinet first because it's a harder instrument, has open holes, so you have to have kind of more precise technique. Saxophone, it's kind of easier to fake it and have slightly sloppier technique, or at least just be a beginner and get a good sound. So clarinet, because it is the more demanding instrument, is actually suggested as the first instrument because once you get your clarinet technique down, saxophone seems much easier because the holes, it doesn't have open holes. So your fingers can kind of just press the keys, you know, a little more loosely. That said, that's kind of, you know, if you're going to be a doubler, which most people are, most people who play saxophone also play flute and also play clarinet. And I mean, when I say most people, I mean like professionals. If you're going to be a professional saxophone player, you probably play clarinet. But at any rate, the order that you learn them isn't that big of a deal. Saxophone is the easiest one to learn at first, in my opinion anyways. So I would say start on saxophone. And if you like it and you want to try clarinet, you'll find a lot in common and you'll actually find a lot of fingerings in common and a lot of technique in common with flute as well. I play all three. I learned saxophone first. It worked fine. And now I play clarinet and flute and really like playing those as well. So that's my advice. Hope it's helpful. Lawrence asks, how do you count the beginning of Nugget by Cake? It's a clear four after the whole band comes in, but I'm having trouble lining up the guitar intro. Well, first of all, I love this name for a song. We had a late, great French bulldog named Nugget, and I will never not think of him when I hear the word Nugget. Uh, So let's listen to this intro and see if we can figure out how it is counted. cool man cake is such a cool band this song has such a good groove on it that intro is a classic kind of fake out intro like i've broken down on this show before um it just is beginning on the upbeat in a way that makes you think it's the downbeat and i can kind of give you one trick for how to hear it because actually the first time i heard this i wasn't faked out just because of one thing that the guitar player did so first i'm just going to count this going in we're not going to count it in double time we'll just count it in four four and it starts on the upbeat so if you're hearing it as one and two and three and four it's one and that's really the key to hearing this is you've got to count the one in your head even though it isn't like audibly being played as a note by the band let's count it with them three four a one two three So it's all about hearing that one, even though that's the one place that nobody is playing anything. However, the second time they play that riff, you can hear the guitar player mark one by muting the string really sharply on the downbeat. And that is the thing that you really want to listen for. He's kind of like, and then he's like, so when he cuts that note off, it actually acts as this sort of a percussive hit that tells you where he's feeling one. And when I heard that, I could tell, ah, that's where one is because that's where the guitar player is feeling it. Listen for it. Right here. (laughs) 
So that's how you count that. You have to hear one where nobody is playing and just be aware of the fact that the first note that they play is the upbeat of one or the and of one. And in general, with these kinds of intros, it can help to hear those kinds of little tells from the musicians when they do something to mark the downbeat, even if it is technically, you know, not a note. And the more you play this kind of thing yourself, the more you'll know what to listen for because you'll find yourself doing the same kinds of things to mark those downbeats and keep everybody oriented. Alexi writes in from Russia, hi Russia, and he writes, there is a song by D'Angelo and the Vanguard called Ain't That Easy, which has an incredible vibe to it, mainly because the vocals are dragging quite a lot. They drag so much, in fact, it almost feels like a mistake, but to me, it is still so groovy. What is the trick? Why is it so cool to listen to even though it is almost out of rhythm? This is a great question about one of my favorite recording artists, so let's listen to a clip of that. This is D'Angelo and the Vanguard, and the tune is Ain't That Easy. Now listen to this. So man, D'Angelo. So D'Angelo is just the master of time and the master of feel. On that Rhythm and Harmony episode that I made a couple episodes back, I talked a little bit about feel. And this is like the most extreme example of what someone can do, like a real visionary musician can do by manipulating feel. So D'Angelo plays a whole bunch of instruments. He's a singer. He does a lot of multi-tracking of his voice. He plays bass. He plays drums. He, on a lot of the tracks, I don't know about on this album, but on a lot of his stuff, he'll play everything. So he has this complete fine control over how the you know how the groove feels where each note is placed in the beat and he likes to lay back a lot this is actually a really great example of that when that full vocal ensemble comes in they're doing that's just called laying back they're laying back on the beat so hard that they're almost on a different tempo you know sort of like Alexi mentions it's just not quite there so it just gives you this feeling of like it's hard to even put into words it's a distinct and really amazing feeling so to answer your question, Alexi, what is the trick? The trick is consciously laying back, and this is the kind of thing that it requires everyone to be on the same page and you've got to be doing it together and you just tell people we're going to lay this thing back and I want you to lay back and then it's just a matter of working out you know how you want it to feel it's a hard thing to notate because it's something you just feel in the moment and it's a really organic way of approaching a groove because all grooves lay certain beats back one way or another nothing is perfectly quantized and matched up with the beat because that's not really groove that's just you know perfect subdivision but subdivision and groove are very different and groove comes down to feel it comes down to this more human element that's just changeable depending on who's doing it and the greatest grooves tend to happen when a few people are really feeling it together and they agree on what's going to be delayed what's going to be laid back and i mean d'angelo is the master of this stuff that guy has a better feel on his records than almost anyone I can think of. So he's a great example of this. He does it when he's overdubbing with himself. Obviously, that's one way to approach laying back. And he also does it when he's collaborating with people or when he's playing with other musicians. He's just really got a sense for it. 
But really, everybody, go listen to D'Angelo. D'Angelo is amazing. Our last question comes from Gayla, who writes, One of my favorite modern pop artists is Bruno Mars. But when I first heard one of his early hit singles, Locked Out of Heaven on the radio without knowing who the artist was, somehow I mistook him for the 80s rock band The Police. hear his song finesse it somehow makes me think of a 90s boy band can you help me figure out what i am hearing in these songs that's making me so nostalgic even when i'm hearing them for the first time this is a really fun question and i am happy to help get to the bottom of it Now, Bruno Mars is a fantastically talented pop artist. I really admire him a lot. I think he's a great singer, just like a great technician, a really wonderful performer, and a good songwriter. He's also kind of a musical magpie. I don't mean that in negative ways, so maybe magpie is the wrong word, but he really likes to grab, you know, sounds from different eras and remix them and repackage them and give people something that sounds familiar but with a slight twist on it. He's definitely doing that with both of these songs, and I would say he's actually probably consciously channeling the two artists that you're talking about. Like, listen to something from Sting and the Police like Can't Stand Losing You. Listen to the groove on this. And then listen back to the Bruno Mars tune, Locked Out of Heaven. I mean, he's he's going for a very similar kind of vibe. its own thing, but if you listen to a lot of Sting and the Police, you'll hear those kinds of grooves, the way that the drums are going, those hits that they're doing, the tightness of the rhythm section, where his voice is, the style he's singing in. He's just kind of capturing that vibe, but even though he's doing it in his own way. I would say finesse is an even more clear-cut homage. He is definitely doing an homage to the sort of 80s, 90s New Jack swing thing. This was the sort of style that you heard a lot on the radio. Groups like Bobby Brown, Janet Jackson, um, Belle Biv DeVoe. Listen to the beginning of the Bruno Mars song. And now listen to the intro to Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison from 1990. Or listen to the groove from the Bruno Mars song. And now listen to the groove on Bobby Brown's On Our Own, which was a featured single from the 1989 Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack. So Bruno Mars is consciously using so many of the same sounds, the same bass sound, the same kind of groove, the same kind of feel, same production techniques. He's got the orchestra hit sound effect in there later in this track that the orchestra hit was all over the place in a lot of that New Jack Swing stuff from the early 90s, late 80s. So, you know, he is he is very much um, a master of capturing the sounds of certain styles of music. And that makes a listener feel nostalgic because it takes you back to the first time you heard music that sounded like that, even though you are hearing something new. I don't think this is a bad thing. I actually think he's very, very good at it. It's a challenging thing to do as well as he does it because it involves creating new music that is wrapped in the sounds and flavors of old music, which lets people hear old things in a new way.
And that'll do it for this Q&A episode. Thanks everybody who wrote in a question. I have a lot more to get through and I appreciate everybody who writes in. I've got a big list and we will be doing more mailbag episodes throughout 2020. So by all means, if you have a musical question, something along the lines of things I've answered on the show or something totally different, feel free to write in and ask. As always, you can reach me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at K-I-R-K Hamilton and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Thanks so much to my patrons for making this show possible. Find out more about how to support me at patreon.com slash strongsongs. Thanks everyone who's been helping spread the word about this show. Keep telling your friends about it. I feel like they'll probably like it. This episode's outro soloist is Mr. Galen Clark on the keys, so stick around for him and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. Thank you.